podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. There's Colin. Hi, Colin. Here all the time. I just couldn't find the video button. I heard everything you were saying about me. I've never known such a build-up, I must say, as this. Trust me, David, it's not as abnormal as they're trying to make it out. Hello everyone, this is Colin Schindler, welcoming you once again to another edition of Football Ruined My Life. This week, John Holmes, Patrick Barclay and I are leaving the field of play and are retiring into the antechamber of the Football Association, where, if you remember Mondays at 12.30, in the days of our youth, we would always find Brian Butler and his radio microphone waiting patiently to be summoned into the council chamber where three men in suits with dandruff and halitosis would shake up the wooden balls in the velvet bag and make the draw for the next round of the Football Association Cup competition, as they called it. It was a sacred, a solemn act, on a par with the anointing of a monarch with holy oil. The idea of its being an entertainment show on television was risible. These days, the balance of power has swung completely in favour of television. For years, the FA officials were distant objects, that Olympian figure, Sir Stanley Rouse, who refereed the 1934 Cup final, won, as you all know, 2-1 by Manchester City, was the secretary of the FA from 1934 to 1962, after which he became president of FIFA for a further 12 years. At the 1966 World Cup final, Rouse sat between Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. His successors at the FA were initially shadowy figures before they became rather figures of fun to be mocked, many of them retiring after some scandal or another. And finally, in January 2011, we got a man who was honest, organised and sympathetic to the game, and he is our much-appreciated guest for the day. Welcome to Football Ruin My Life, David Bernstein. Thank you, Colin. We did have this collection of FA chairmen who preceded you, <laughs> who retired amidst confusion, shall we say, to put it you know, euphemistically. Why was it so difficult for the FA to behave like a proper administrator? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Yeah, football's a funny institution to be part of. Very easy to get seduced by it, to get seduced by the glamour. I think I was able, maybe in my experience with Manchester City, helped to be a reasonably level-headed, you know, to enjoy it, but to just try and keep a sort of feel of balance whilst I was in that world. It cost me in the end, I think, because... I had a fairly reformist agenda as chairman of the FA, and I think in the end it was not to the liking of the FA Council. I think it felt a little endangered that maybe if I stayed around for much longer, there was a danger of perhaps a little bit too much change and reform. John, you're nodding. Is that your experience of the FA as well? Well, from outside and from being chairman of various associations in sport, one of your problems is, of course, that as David says, what happens to people is they really get to like it. And, of course, you've mentioned the idea that Stanley Rouse, who is this obscure, not particularly distinguished man, to be absolutely honest, ended up sitting between the Queen and Prince Philip, would constitute the highlight of his career. We all of us realise quite early on that football, of course, is seductive. It's almost an addiction and you become quite prominent. And of course, these people get into the role and they get comfortable with it. It's their calling card. And with the FA, which was full of a lot of people who are not particularly successful, otherwise in life doesn't apply actually to David, of course, but a lot of them 
they get very, very excited. And of course, they say, you know, I'm on the FA committee. I think John puts it very well indeed. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Most of us have, you know, fairly ordinary lives and so on. This is an incredible highlight and it brings prestige and colour and they come to Wembley and it's just fantastic for them. And why would they want to give that up if they didn't have to? You're absolutely right, John. The sport has this seductive power, doesn't it? And once you're away from it, life loses a little bit of its colour and its drama. Well, I wanted to be you, David. For 40 years, I was a football journalist. But for 40 years, I didn't really care about writing. I wasn't bad at it, but I didn't really care. But what I wanted to do was influence football. So I can understand this addiction. I had it. I was never allowed to taste the drug. And it's the biggest regret of my life because I think I could have helped the game. I can tell you something more about how power corrupts. I took the FIFA shilling. Sepp Blatter, do you remember, David? Actually, it might even have been before your time, but it was a thing called Task Force 2000. So once a year, they'd have this meeting of people from all sides of the game. There were managers, there were players, there were this and that. They'd have a commentator and a written journalist. And I was the written journalist one year. We went out to Stockholm. It was unbelievable, the luxury and what was laid on and all that. And I remember there was an allowance. The guy who engaged me told me, don't forget to collect your allowance. The cashier's office, which was 24-7, was downstairs. Now, I'd only done one session due to work. I'd, I'd been there for one afternoon. And they said... This is your thing, so a thousand Swiss francs or whatever it was. It was seemed a fortune to me at the time. In fact, it would now. And I said, well, yeah, I'll take the thousand Swiss francs for my expenses for the day, although there hadn't been any expenses because we'd been wined and dined. They said, no, 2,000. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, this is today. You did your work yesterday. You're still here today. So you get 2,000 Swiss francs. So I can understand how you get sucked into it. I know that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the FA, but I just had to confess to that. You know, I had to put that in the public domain. You're tainted forever, Paddy. But I think the experiences you have, you know, when you're in this sort of world of sport, I mean, you're talking about Blatter, and I went to Zurich to see him about some stuff. And there was a scene that was, you know, I don't remember the great film on the waterfront with mm. Marlon Brando, with a scene in the back of the taxi. Yeah. And I'm in the back of one of their, not a taxi, heaven forbid, one of their luxurious limousines. We're going to get a lunch in a FIFA restaurant on the mountain somewhere. And Blatter sort of needed some stuff, needed some support. And he takes my arm. David, if you do so, you will support me, won't you? To which I said, if you put through the reforms that you've talked about and so on, I will support you, but only if you do what you say you're going to do. I think set him back a little bit. And then we proceeded to have this marvellous lunch in uh, in the mountains. He was certainly a performer. He knew how to handle people. He was very, very clever. He loved football. He really did. I can remember once talking to him about offside. It was when they brought in, if there's any doubt in your mind, give the advantage to the attacker. But the linesmen took an awful long time, as they were called at the time. They they took an awful long time to cotton on to this because they were so ingrained in the sort of traffic warden mentality of destroying things rather than helping the game along, which they should be doing. And I said, oh, I just wish they'd give the advantage to the attacker. And Blatter says, you know what? They'd make fewer mistakes if they just kept their flag down all the time. And that was a football man talking. He wanted attacking play. He wanted creativity. And Platini as well, a football man. Football man through and through. 
And that's why I'd like to sort of balance that against the less attractive sides of their, well, particularly Blatter's legacy. Well, I think we remember, just to stir it up a bit now here, mm -hmm. I remember with a great deal of pleasure, and you know that David and I are friends as much as anything, and, and he made this speech at a FIFA conference where I think Blatter was being re-elected unopposed. I think that mm -hmm. was the point at issue. Yes. And David made the point that it's wrong just to have nobody standing against him because there yes. is no voice for anybody who disagrees with him, and it's just ridiculous. David, perhaps you could tell everybody how that came about, and particularly the reaction that you got to it. There was meant to be a candidate standing against Blatter for the presidency. I think it was Ben Hamman, was the guy's name, yeah. I think. And fairly late in the day, for whatever reason, he withdrew. And at that time, FIFA was under huge pressure for all sorts of reasons and being criticised for all manner of things. So to have a coronation as opposed to an election just, just wasn't right, and I was going to say so. I was then faced with attempts by my own colleagues at the FA to stop me. They said, oh, you just can't do that. I was then faced with an emergency meeting of UEFA that was called at 8 o'clock the morning of the FIFA conference to try and talk me out of it. And they quoted all sorts of rules and whatever to me. And I said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I still think this is fundamentally wrong. And, you know, I believe in free speech. We in Britain believe in free speech, all that stuff. I will say this. You wonder latterly how you do these things. But I went to the front of 2,000 people in this meeting and said what I felt needed to be said. And there was then a vote on the thing, which actually did get us all about 17 or 18 nations and a lot of abstentions. And a lot of people quietly came up to me and said, look, we can't vote against Blatter for various reasons, but actually we sympathise very much with what you tried to do. And I must say, it got a lot of support back home, back here, as I thought it probably would do. The media were very sympathetic, and it yeah. was almost the first time someone had actually stood up to Blatter in that sort of way. And I think it sort of maybe was the, helped with the beginning of trying to get some propriety back into people. So it was very pleased I stopped by my gums. As chairman of the FA, what did you find was the general reaction, not necessarily to you per se, but to you ex officio, in other words, to the English FA? You know, this is where the game started and this is the home of football, etc., etc. And you always said how pleased they were to come to Wembley. But it wasn't the same when you went to their place, was it? I mean, what was the feeling about England in the wider football world? I think it was very mixed. There was a great feel that, yes, England was the founder of the game and so on and so forth. But at the same time, there was this lingering sort of colonially related resentment that we were a little bit too big for our boots. I'd watch our set very carefully. Almost a sort of a proceeding of the scenario we have in the world now, where we have to watch our step even more carefully in view of the anti-colonial feeling of reinterpretation of history and so on. Yeah, it was a very careful sort of balance. All through my career, I've believed that football is institutionally corrupt or it has been since the 1980s because of the influence of agents in transfers. You know, footballers need agents, of course they do, or representatives, but their involvement in transfers, in my opinion, is plain institutional corruption. I can't think of any other phrase for it. I may be wrong, but I got the impression that, that you kind of shared that view as well when you were at the FA. Was there ever... Any sort of move to go back to the situation before, I can't remember when the reform was brought in, you know, when agents were forbidden, uh, intermediaries 
We've got forbidden in transfers. Yeah, I had much more to do with agents, really, when I was in Manchester City than I did at the FA. There were some who were very good and I thought really did fulfil a fun, you know, a, an important function, yeah. particularly with overseas players. They scouted, they found things, made introductions, some, some of which were very valid. I think at the FA, I was only there for, for chairman for three years and I had quite a big agenda and agents mm. didn't really feature. I was much more concerned with governance and the FA's reputation and efficiency and all manner of other things. So, no, didn't really feature on my agenda over that period. I think it was absolutely important that players had someone to represent them. But absolutely. equally, if not absolutely more important than that was, that it should be the players who paid them and not the acquiring clubs. Absolutely. This is where the bit goes wrong. 100%. Yeah, And that still remains my view. And I will tell you at the moment that the agents act on behalf of the clubs and not on behalf of the players. This is not the situation in the USA who look on it as quite extraordinary, the behaviour that we have allowed in European football. As regards the international agents, they are in many ways the most corrupt of the lot. One of the most Farcical events I ever attended was a FIFA organized event to cover agents. And we flew over to Covacciano near Florence, the headquarters of the Italian FA. And we were taken in buses and given hotels and all this sort of thing. I was only one of two English agents who bothered to attend. The first speech was given by a German lawyer. And the basis of what he said was FIFA's rules have no legal standing anywhere in the world, not even in Switzerland or the canton where they came from. He then sat down and I just felt like laughing and saying, well, the whole thing's a waste of time then. And there's talks on other things and you then get actually some rather moving things about what had happened with African players coming to Europe and being abandoned by agents, these international agents, which genuinely that did need working out. I then stood up and said that the only people who should be paying players' agents are the players. There was complete sure. uproar from the 86 or so Italian agents who also attended the conference, who were infuriated. They thought this was utterly dreadful. We were told at the end of the conference that FIFA would undoubtedly take action about the things that had been raised, and we went away. And, of course, absolutely nothing happened on any count at all. And the reason I got out of representing players was it has become totally corrupt. In a lot of cases, the selling club and the buying club both pay, and the player pays as well. Mm. It is utterly bewildering mm. what goes mm. on. This double paying, it's so, I mean, I, I was a working producer and writer for a long time. And, you know, my agent took 10 or 15% of my earnings and always has. But he didn't sort of take it from the BBC as well. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's so absolutely insane and so obviously correct. Yes, but the FA, not in David's time, but much later, the FA actually brought in a rule almost compelling the clubs to take account of the agent's fee in the wage slip of the player. That's what I mean by institutionalised corruption. Actually putting it through the books like that and making it the norm was really a sign of the laxity of proper regulation that characterises the game. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that it's got much worse 
since the stakes have got higher since the Premier League has started. I mean, people have described English football as the Wild West. And I think that's a good description. I agree, totally. You never see a brown paper parcel of money at anybody. They just put it through the books. It's brazen. They're talking about a regulator for football. But there won't be a regulator regulating important things like that. All he'll be regulating is the price of the pies and bringing down away tickets to 20 quid or 15 quid or something like that. You know, just at the margins. If you outlawed institutionalised corruption in English football, the ticket prices would come down anyway because the cost of intermediaries, you can only estimate it. But the figures are published every year by the Premier League. And... They are eye-watering. I mean, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds a year, not being paid to the players, not being levied from the clubs, but just being thrown out of the game. They may as well build a bonfire, just being thrown out of the game in payments to intermediaries who've done bugger all, except seal a consensual agreement between a player who's gagging to get to a club and a club that's gagging to have him. And if you took that hundreds and hundreds of millions and subsidised ticket prices, they'd come down. I know life doesn't work like that because the players would just take the the spare money (laughs) again because of lax regulation. You know, another thing, another thing would be television money. Television money is just given straight to the clubs so that they can compete with each other, driving wages unnecessarily high. There is not a single player in the Premier League who would not do his job for a fifth of the money. Now, that's bad management, isn't it? It's capitalism in its rawest form. In its rawest form. And even if you look at, I mean, at the moment, they're trying to regulate it. I mean, they want to do what they've done in Formula One, which is really what should have been done in football all the time. I have a cost cap, not the salary cap, but a cost cap. And what should be done with the TV money, what I would have proposed, is that the TV money is just cut in half. Half of it is kept for spending on projects that will help the game on things that are needed and the other half to be given to the clubs so that they can pay the players what they'd be perfectly happy with anyway. Poor old David didn't come here to be harangued by people's hobby horses so I I apologise. One of my specialist subjects is governance and football and I with a fairly distinguished group of people put together a manifesto for change in football which Mm. has really I think I can say it greatly influenced the white paper that's now being produced by the government. And we had a great cross-party group of people. We had Helen Grant, an ex-minister. We had Andy Burnham, Gary Neville, Lord Mervyn King, and so on. So it certainly advocates a whole a wide range of changes. And I'm pleased in many ways that this has been picked up now by government and so on. But I'm a bit concerned that government seems to be trying to avoid some of the key issues that we weigh, particularly the distribution of finance. I do think there's the need for two or three or four key measures in redistributing finance to rebalance and trying to strengthen the pyramid of football, not just the peak of that pyramid, because the rest of the pyramid is very shaky. David, I don't know whether you see it as I do, but there is a fundamental difference between the way the Americans run sport and we run sport. They invented their own sports, and they were quick to actually realise how quickly corruption could enter sports. You know, the infamous case of Shoeless Joe Jackson and when the World Series was fixed by Arnold Rothstein, the authorities became more powerful 
What happened in this country was that the clubs became more powerful. And then there is this clash all the time between the clubs and the FA, between the pros and the amateurs. It happened in cricket as well. And in cricket, the amateurs won. But in football, basically, it was the pros who won. And the FA were actually a load of amateurs. And players, you know, they had to get permission from their clubs and all this sort of thing. But what we have all the way through this is that the Americans are actually pretty good at controlling their sports and so on. Their problem is that their sports are pretty rubbish. They've never been able to take baseball around the world. They've never been able to take NFL around the world. They've never been able to take basketball around the world. And what we're seeing actually at the moment, and it's being played out in the Premier League, is a battle between the Americans and the oil countries. Our top clubs are now either owned by Americans or oil. That is where it is. And it's a battle. And the Saudis now we've seen recently enter this battle and they're starting up their own league and they're taking a slightly different view to the Americans. But they're actually they've got more money. So it's quite possible that the Middle East will win in this battle. Right. You really covered a lot of ground there, John. <laughs> Sorry. Look, I agree with a lot of what you said, but I think I'm a realist and I've tried in my own way and with this group of people and my experience at the FA to try and help introduce some real practical change into what it is. I mean, we can't dispute that the Premier League is a fantastic institution. Maybe Colin doesn't watch it anymore, I'm not sure. But I do, in spite of a lot of reservations. But of course, what has happened, the Premier League is so wealthy and so powerful, it, it does dominate the English game. And the FA cannot combat it. The FA is not strong enough, it's not professional enough, it's not independent enough, it hasn't reformed itself sufficiently, it lacks credibility. That has made a huge number of mistakes on the way. And therefore, I do believe that we do need a powerful independent regulator with real power to do a whole range of things. Some of the financial, with a genuine proper licensing system, a fit a proper person test, and, and to ensure the fans do receive a degree of protection on major issues like selling football grounds and things like that, which threaten to destroy clubs with the aim of strengthening the wider game in the country and ensuring that a lot more money passes down to the rest of the game. Unfortunately, if you ask me, how do I feel about nation states only clubs? I'm not really great on the idea, but we are where we are. It's happened now. There's no going back. So we need, I think, to try and make the best of what we've got and try and rebalance the game for the benefit of the wider game and the fans. Well, you know my feelings about this, and I feel very strongly about it, and I keep saying it at every possible opportunity because I do feel passionately about the game and I am so dismayed about the nation states. I mean, I really am. I don't like the Americans much, but I hate the nation states much more because people say, well, the Glazers are just as bad as Abu Dhabi. Well, no, no, the Glazers don't put people in prison. That is my point. And the horrible people who own my football club. I'm not disagreeing with you, but we are where we are. It's done. This horse has long since bolted. So what we have to do, I think, is try and adjust to it and try and ensure that this league, this Premier League, with the backing of these nation-states and the power, particularly the big clubs, that we try and remove some of that power and rebalance the game. John, you're raising your pencil in a very aggressive manner. What's going I'm sorry on? sorry to do it in a very <laughs> restrained manner. The American sports have commissioners, and I totally agreed with David's committee that was set up. 
actually Greg Clark, one of your successors, did want me to contribute to that. But actually, I felt that whilst it would produce decent conclusions, nobody would do anything about it and it would fade away because the government didn't really care. And the thing they cared about most of all on sport is not to upset anybody, least of all when it's coming up to an election. But you do need a commissioner. You do need genuine independence at the top of it. This is what the Americans realised early on, and their setup was better. The situation with agents in America, just to give an example, is that the union negotiates the basic contract. The player's agent, paid only by the player, negotiates the bits on top, which is, in my opinion, a very good way of doing it. But... What has happened is the advent of television and also the strength of the game itself. The game and its narrative is fantastic. It's brilliant. You do not get drama in any other sport on a consistent level as you do in football. Look at the World Cup final. It was fantastic. It was utterly brilliant. And regularly in the Premier League, we get these events going on and so on. And I have to say it's terrific. One of the reasons it's terrific and other sports are not so terrific is that it's simple. Everybody understands football. Kick a ball past a goalkeeper, that's a goal. We've had really ordinary World Cup finals, John, I need to point out. I mean, yes, it was very good. 2022 is a fabulous final. But, you know, there have been a lot of World Cup finals that have been dull. Yeah, but there have been a lot of good games along the way. It is really about the fundamentals, the way the game is set up, the way it's governed, and the power of the clubs. The clubs now, the big clubs, control the game. They do not realise, foolishly, in my opinion that actually the best stories and the one that really took it off in America and everybody, you can all throw pots and pans at me now because you know what I'm going to say. When Leicester won the league, it was the best story for the Premier League in the US. People stopped calling it Leicester. They rang me up and talked about it. And I was told at the time, I'm sure that this was true, when Leicester won the league, the big clubs got together and said, we must make sure this never, ever happens again. I believe that. Because it's bust our business model. Exactly. Well, let me ask, David, that if we had this commissioner of football, Paddy, so they'll only be able to alter the price of the pies. If you did have an independent commissioner who was given statutory powers over the clubs, why wouldn't it work? Obviously, I think we should do it. But, but, but I think there was a danger that one of the key areas, which has to be the financial distribution of monies throughout football, the government has already said, they're hoping that the Premier League and the Football League can sort out that between themselves and that government will only be a port of last resort. And I don't believe that's the case. I mean, it's a bit like asking Ukraine to fight Russia without any help from the outside. It's a complete imbalance of power. It ain't going to work. I'm very disappointed if that turns out to be the government's interpretation of the work that we've done and of the White Paper. So, I mean, there's a number of things. I'll just give one example. In my view, A, parachute payments should be done away with and replaced by something else because they are anti-competitive. And B, and this is so fundamental, there should be mandatory relegation clauses in players' contracts. How can you ever have a viable football league if they're paying Premier League salaries on a fraction of the income? It, it, It just can't work. There's just a couple of innovations that we're going to need if we're going to get some sort of sanity into football below Premier League levels.
Well, who's going to fight that, David? I mean, every club would want that relegation clause. Why isn't it there? I mean, that's... Because some clubs have it and some don't. The ones that don't are sort of potential disadvantage of signing players. If you're a player going to a middling, it doesn't really apply to Manchester City or Manchester United, but if you're going to a middling club like, well, like Everton should be, let's say, or West Ham or somebody, who could go down, you would not really want to go to that club as a player if you felt your salary could be slashed in half or, or third. Again, it favours the bigger clubs. It needs to be it needs to be something imposed across the game. Let me ask Paddy this one: What's different about Scotland? The relationship between the clubs and Celtic Rangers and the Scottish FA is that directly comparable to the top six clubs in England and the Premier League and the FA here? That's certainly what everybody believes. You know, there's a lot of dark humour about how Scottish football it is in the grip of particularly Rangers, but in a way. That's as it is inevitable. Because if you're, well, my club, Dundee, if you're Dundee, you absolutely dread the games against Rangers or Celtic because two-thirds of the crowd's theirs, maybe some of the time, therefore two-thirds of the income. So in a way, they should be more influential because they pay for everything. I hate it. I hate the imbalance of it. And I dread people say, oh, you, when you get promoted, you're really looking forward to the Rangers and Celtic games. I hate them. Absolutely hate them. And everybody does because they're not matches. It's not like against like. And I can see English football going the same. Everybody can. The point of this podcast often generally is to talk about things as they used to be and things as they are now. Well, what we are arguing here, and we're not Luddites, is for it to be like it was. Well, thank you. But I think all the reforms that were made in, I think, the 1980s, if you unreform them, you have actually the answer to all the problems. I mean, in the post-war years, Leicester's were ten a penny because Portsmouth would win the league. Wolves would win the league. Fairy tales happened a lot then. Manchester United, you know, I did a book about Matt Busby and the, the reason I gave him the edge over Ferguson was that in Ferguson's latter years, certainly, he was able to bully other clubs with money. Matt Busby never could. Manchester United, of course, were desirable, but they couldn't just pluck any player they wanted, as Manchester United and Man City and Liverpool and Chelsea can now, and Arsenal maybe, to an extent. There wasn't this imbalance. I do worry that because there ain't enough communism, because there's too much capitalism and not enough of the communism that rules American sport, that you will end up with Scottish football. I promise you, you won't like it. Paddy, I half agree with you. But in fact, the horse has long since bolted. So as we're down that road, we may as well continue down it. So you may not, and Colin certainly wouldn't. I don't like the idea of Saudi Arabia owning an English club. But the fact is, by so doing, we are increasing the competition at the top of the game. So Mm -hmm. now you've got Arsenal and Spurs and City and United and Chelsea and Newcastle. And if someone buys Everton and someone else buys West Ham, at least you will have a widened base of competition. Except the only argument against that, David, is at the moment Manchester City win everything. Yes. So it's not competitive. The action that I advocated was when this Super League came in, the owners of those clubs, mostly Americans... They could not believe that they would get opposition from the fans. They thought the fans would love this because they would be playing big games against big clubs every week. 
Now, what was fantastic on that occasion was actually the fans stood up and the fans revolted all over and the fans of the big clubs revolted. And it was actually quite heartening. And actually, if the smaller clubs had really at that point twigged on it, what they would have said was, right, you, Chelsea, Manchester City, Manchester United, Arsenal and Liverpool are expelled from the Premier League. Bugger (laughs) off. Go and play in your own league. They had a majority to do that and they should have done that. And they said, no, no, you can't do that. We have all this and that. They say, no, you are out, right? Unless you agree to new rules. The financial fair play rules at the moment fight totally on behalf of the big clubs. It's ridiculous. My club, Leicester, won the league. Leicester's scouting system has produced some good players. The big clubs have just grabbed them and employed agents to go and say, we will pay you X to get the player to our club. Another reason why agents should not be paid by the clubs, because the agents are actually controlled by the big clubs. I did Mm. feel, I have to say, that when the fans revolted, it was, I think, the best day that I can remember in football for a long time. Because John's right. I mean, they were stunned at how that happened because they did not expect it to do so. And I just thought, well, there is some hope in football. I mean, that, it reinvigorated my sense of it's not all horrible the way I sometimes think it is. And there is a core of romanticism in the heart of every single football supporter. And I just cherish that romanticism. And I want that to be as strong as it possibly can. Do you, do you in the not, face do you of not, the pragmatism that you're Do you not, though, think that there's a lot in what David said, if I might, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Almost this, I mean, Manchester City being bought by that Abu Dhabi lot has actually given me a huge amount of pleasure. It's brought basically Barcelona to England, to East Manchester. For a start, Manchester derbies mean so much more. No, they don't. They... No, absolutely not, Paddy. It meant more when Mike Doyle was playing. Oh, sorry, Mike Doyle they do. Was playing and he grew up in Manchester and it meant sorry. everything to Doyle. He went, Bye. sorry. Sorry, I'd like to rephrase that because I take that point. The derbies mean more in the television era than neutrals like me. I remember Billy McNeil, when he was manager of City, said to me, well, of course we're going into this game as underdogs against United. And I said, yeah, but City were sort of semi-top dogs at the time. He said, no, 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 we'll always be underdogs. He said, I was at Celtic when we won nine titles in a row and we always went into an old firm game feeling inferior because they were Celtic you know founded to feed the Catholic poor and Rangers were the sort of loyalist royal family and all that so to an extent the city always no matter how much better they might have been than United they weren't as big favorites until that lot took over and, and they definitely, you know, Mario Balotelli and all that. But I think the Super League's pushback by the fans does show, in a sense, the innate sense that the wide base of fans do love and value the pyramid that we've got. They love relegation. Yeah. I mean, if we had no relegation, the, the Premier League at the moment would be dead boring. Absolutely. It's the relegation part of it. I mean, you know, it's always interesting to, to watch people, you know, on the edge of a failure and disaster. <laughs> Personally, I still think. European football for English fans is a sort of caviar. 
part mm. of the meal, which mm. is great occasionally, but you wouldn't want to live on it. No. Yeah. Very good. And the rarity value of City playing Barcelona or United playing Real Madrid in a way makes it so exciting yeah. and so valuable. Which is why I think that the Champions League is, is upside down because you get City play Bayern Munich every other year. You know, United played Real Madrid in 56, 57 when they got knocked out by the great Real Madrid team. But they didn't play Real Madrid again until they played them in the European Cup semi final 10 years later in 1968 which was, again, memorable, but it's memorable because it's so rare. They play Barcelona and Bayern Munich every year in one round or another. It's dull. It's boring, but that's, you know, that's my opinion, which is not shared, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) No, I totally agree with you. Having had the extraordinary experience of watching Leicester play in the Champions League, the one year they got there, and unbelievably, they were the last English side left in the competition at the quarterfinal stage, and almost got through to the semi-final. Amazing. And for me and for everybody at Leicester, amazing experiences, and it actually captured a lot of the nation's imagination. The worry that I have, and it's not really a worry because I probably won't be here, but if Manchester City keep winning everything, and we could say today there will be five who will compete for relegation. It will be a bit of a competition and it will be more exciting than yes. watching Manchester City win the league again. In 1968, we won the league a very exciting at Newcastle winning 4-3. It yeah. didn't win it again for 45, 50, whatever, until 2012. Yeah. But the point is that throughout my life and throughout, and I'm sure David feels the same being City supporter the way he is, that, that I remembered that side and I remembered those games as John will remember Leicester's 2016 campaign for the rest of your life, I can't tell you the city side that won in 2018, the city side that won in 2020, and the city side that won in 2017. I don't know when they were, but you know what I mean. They That's don't. Hardly a fact we're getting older, Colin. I'm afraid. Mm. I can quote you the, the City 56 team just like that. I couldn't tell you the team that played yesterday on, on um, Friday, whatever it was. Can I ask you a question, though, David? What would be the year in which you became a City fan? 1954. And obviously you're a City fan now. Yes. What's your favourite team? Not the best team. What's your personal favourite team of that time? Two teams, the 1956 cup-winning team, the one I can quote. Trout the uh, was Little, Barnes Ewing, Paul. Exactly, Barnes Ewing, Hayes, Dyson, Johnson, Webby Clark. That's the one. And the 68 or 69 league or cup winning team with Franny Lee and Mike Palmer and Colin Bell. Those two for sure. It's one that obviously I completely share. And of course, it is getting older. But I think I do have a valid point that if you win the championship five years out of six, you can't, you know, and you look back eight years later to those five, you can't tell one from the other. You'll always remember 1968, 1956. You just will. But Colin, do you United fans remember all those leagues they won? One after the other, and you know, pretty sure they feel the same way. Would they be able to tell the difference between two thousand and one and two thousand and three? That's the penalty of success, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, City can only play and win against the teams that are put in front of them. I completely understand that, and I've said it before, and I do think it's the best collection of individual players that that have ever appeared. But by the way, Colin, if nothing lasts, no, I know, I know, it won't last, and this won't last either. Guardiola will go, and this will happen, and that will happen. And an, an Arsenal or Newcastle or somebody will will come along and take their place for a bit. Empires rise and empires fall. Exactly. Exactly. Well, everybody, it's been 
as usual, a stimulating discussion. I can imagine a lot of people listening to this, and I hope there are a lot of people listening to this, who will be enraged by something that was said. Hopefully it was by me, because I suspect it probably was. Well, I've enraged a few of my time in my quiet way, believe me. <laughs> yes, you certainly did. But they will have enjoyed it, nevertheless, because enragement is part of football supporting. So thank you to David, and thank you, as ever, to John Holmes and Patrick Barclay. And if you want to let us know what you think about our little podcast series, please write to us at footballruinmylife, all one word, footballruinmylife at gmail.com. So thanks for that. Thank you for listening. This is Colin Schindler signing off another edition of Football Ruin My Life. Bye. Podcast Network.